Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Clee Talk presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. My name is Bob. I'm hanging out talking Cleveland sports with my older brother, Chris. Chris, what's going on, man? Not much, man. I am super pumped that the tribe is still playing baseball and will be playing baseball for at least uh, another week here. So very excited for the Cleveland Indians advancing in the playoffs with relative ease against the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, definitely uh, an exciting week for, for Cleveland baseball. Uh, you called the sweep, so so uh, tip of the hat to you on that call, um, rubbing it in the faces of just about every article I read pre-series that was predicting a Boston sweep. So I, I'm feeling pretty good, really excited about what happened. Um, you know, two, two one-run games uh, sandwiched by a 6 nothing shutout, uh, Chris, just what what uh, on in general? What, re- recap the series for us, and what what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that the Cleveland Indians are the best team left in the playoffs, with all due respect to every other contender. And I'm thinking that it's time to dispel the notion that the Cleveland Indians are based around their starting pitching. You know, I think a lot of the reason why so many people wrote the Indians off was because there's this. You know, okay, in the preseason, the Indians have all these great arms, so they're a starting pitching team. Then let's check out for six months, come back, see that they don't have two of those arms, and write them off because they're playing the great Boston Red Sox. The Cleveland Indians starting pitching right now is their greatest weakness. It's just a fact. The bullpen is the best left in the tournament. Their defense is outstanding. Their base running skills are better than anyone. They're, They're one of the funnest teams to watch on the base paths. Their offense was right there with Boston's statistically and beat down the Boston, vaunted Boston offense in three games. Honestly, Bob, you you mentioned three other things before you even get to their starting pitching. Oh, and by the way, they have the best pitcher in the American League, Corey Kluber, and arguably all of baseball right now. So to say their starting pitching is their weakest spot should have everyone in baseball pretty scared because quite frankly, and I'm not trying to overlook Toronto here. I'm really not. I'm, I'm just focusing on the Boston series and what I saw out of the tribe because I do think Toronto is going to be a very tough series. But when you look at this Cleveland Indians team and how they won in so many different ways with the bottom of their lineup stepping up big, I mean, you know, Santana and Napoli did not have good series, yet they still got production out of guys like Roberto Perez, who I think was the series MVP, Coco Crisp, Brandon Geyer, Lonnie Chisenhall, Tyler Naquin, who Naquin only had like one hit, but it was in game three that drove in a couple runs. So the fact of the matter is, the Cleveland Indians are so much more than just one thing. They are probably the most complete team in baseball, and I really think they have a shot to to win it all. I, I'm I am completely sold on them. I'm all in. You can call me a fan or whatever, but they showed to the world that they are a more complete team than they were giving credit for going into this postseason. Yeah, for for sure. I think they put the the rest of the world on notice. I mean, whenever. You go up against a team with the pedigree of the Boston Red Sox, uh, and you're the Cleveland Indians with, you know, not really any kind of recognizable names on the team. Uh, most people are gonna skew the the narrative or the series towards the Red Sox, and especially considering that it was David Ortiz's last season, the farewell season, and all that stuff. So they were naturally going to, you know, talk favorably of the uh, the Red Sox and talk of this series in. in uh, with the Red Sox as the subject, you know, it drove me crazy when, um, 
Terry Francona rolls out with Andrew Miller in, in game one and, and leaves him in for 40 pitches, leaves Cody Allen in for four pitches. The Indians win the game. Yet everyone t- is talking after that game, you know, beating the Red Sox, I think shocking a lot of people that they even won that game with Trevor Bauer starting, going, going up against uh, a Cy Young candidate and Rick Porcello, maybe even the presumptive Cy, won, Cy Young winner in Rick Porcello. Um, you know, shocking everyone. And all anyone could talk about was how the Indians were in trouble because they used Andrew Miller and Cody Allen for, for 80 pitches. And it's like, well, well, they won the game. I mean, they're, they're, they, they are in control of the series. They, they, I don't know it, that, that really frustrated me. Um, I, I was really impressed with the, with this Indians team, uh, the bullpen, uh, some gutsy starts by Trevor Bauer and Josh Tomlin by far, not the most perfect starts, not dominating starts, but, um, those both of those exceeded expectations particularly Josh Tomlin's in game three on the road I mean he was at one point just mowing guys down and you know as soon as he got into a little trouble yeah Andrew Miller comes in and shuts it down but Tomlin was was gutsy and and I uh, was really impressed with that Xander Bogarts Hanley Ramirez Mookie Betts Dustin Pedroia and David Ortiz that's your top uh five of your six top batters on the Red Sox uh, nobody hit higher than 250, had a combined three RBIs. Uh, Pedroia, Ramirez, and Bogart struck out uh, about 11 times in the series. Um, they, ju- they just shut them down. I mean, this is the Red Sox team that has scored more runs than any other team in the league. And, you know, with the number one and number four and number five pitcher and a really good bullpen, the, the Indians dominated them. And I was thoroughly impressed. And I think that, yeah, they put a lot of people on notice and, and are now uh, probably on par with the Cubs as favorites to, to get to the world series. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk more about Roberto Perez, who I thought had the best overall series, what he did in games one and two, uh, first off, hitting the home run to get the Cleveland Indians going. That started a uh, three out of four string of home runs sandwiched between uh, Carlos Santana out, uh, you know, Kipnis, and then Lindor went back to back. That was big. But then the the play, I think, of the series was Santana hits a deep shot to left field in game one. Outfielders going back. Doesn't really think about getting the ball in with any haste because Perez is on first. Perez sees him backpedaling and tags and gets in the scoring position. That was the deciding run. Next play, hit, he scores, they win 5-4. to four. That was such a heads-up play, it turned the series. It, it was the deciding run. He, that was just heads-up base running from your catcher. I've said it all year long. This Cleveland Indians team is the best base running team in baseball. They have so many guys who put so much pressure on the defense when they're on. I mean, I could go down the list. I'd basically be reading the starting lineup minus Napoli and Santana. Pretty much. I mean, I'm not saying Santana doesn't run the base as well, but he's not really a stealer. Napoli got a steal in the series. That's true. (laughs) But the point is, exactly, the point is, these, this team runs the bases well, they're aggressive, and their lineup, you said it last week, they're like the Kansas City Royals were the last two years. They don't have anyone who's like, oh my gosh, David Ortiz. 
But their weakness is so much stronger than everyone else's weakness, especially when Roberto Perez hit the way he did. He had a solid game at the series at the plate, and defensively, I, I, I cannot let this go. He blocked a ton of pitches. I mean, Cody Allen in, in that first game had a bunch of pitches that could have gotten by. He blocked every single one of them. He kept the base running in control, and he had an outstanding tag early in game one that was upheld on replay that saved another run on a Hanley Ramirez double. Could have been 2 nothing. It was Instead, it was just one. The fact of the matter is, Bob, I think Roberto Perez was the MVP of the series. You know, everyone's talking about Andrew Miller, but Perez had an outstanding series. And if he plays that way, keeps playing this way, man, I'm glad Jonathan Lucroy vetoed that trade with his sub-100 average getting swept out of the postseason. Boy, man, that's the only thing more satisfying than this, than that guy getting swept away while the team he rejected moves on with a catcher who thoroughly outplayed him in the postseason. Well, I mean, and you touched on the, the greatest difference between the two. You know, Jonathan LeCroy had a costly pass ball in that third game, uh, the the final game of that sweep, whereas Roberto Perez, like you mentioned, was calling a great game and, and blocking any anything that came in the dirt. Uh, defensively, I mean, there there's no question that the Indians were the better team. Uh, the the Red Sox just weren't ready for it. You mentioned the the uh, failure to get the ball in for a uh, tag up from first to second by Perez in the outfield. Uh, Dustin Pedroia, one of the best fielding second basemen in the history of the MLB, had an error. Uh, Xander Bogarts with that uh, dropped pop fly in the third game. I mean, they they just weren't ready for the moment. And I think that that it might be the most surprising mo- thing. Uh, the Red Sox, you know, winners of three World Series champion in the last 10 years. The Indians, relatively unknown guys, younger guys. Uh, and they just they had an energy they had a confidence that and the Red Sox were intimidated and uh, I think that's really shocking I, I I'm not shocked that they won I'm just kind of shocked that uh, the way they just dominated the Red Sox and just about every facet of the game including the managing and I, I don't think John Farrell had a chance to manage well in, in high leverage situations <laughs> just because the Indians were really just on top the the entire series i mean the red sox were on top a couple times in the first game but they all the indians always responded in in the next half inning but uh francona in every opportunity where a manager can implement some change in the game you know he hit a home run and putting andrew miller in in the high leverage situation early in the game in game one putting him back in in game three you know being aggressive calling aggressive moves on the base paths mike napoli like i said with the only stolen base in the entire series. I mean, the bunt uh, in, in game three, that set up a two-run RBI single for, for Tyler Naquin. Everyone was like, why are you bunting? I mean, he he could not lose in this series. And I think that, yeah, he just has a really strong control of the game and a strong control of the clubhouse and a little bit of luck. I mean, some of those moves could have gone the other way and you know we would be questioning them. But uh, when you get the sweep, when, when they all work out, I mean – you got to tip your hat to Tito Francona. Oh, certainly. But I want to get to this World Series thing that you you touched upon. You know, yes, the Red Sox have been a very successful organization. Three World Series in the last 10 years or 12 years. Nothing to scoff at. But Pedroia, Poppy have three. 
John Farrell has won. After that, there's not really much World Series experience on the team anymore. I mean, this isn't the Red Sox team that won those World Series. They missed the playoffs for just as long as the Indians have. The last time both of these teams were in the playoffs was 2013. And look at the Indian side. Mike Napoli won one of those Red Sox rings. Coco Crisp won one of those Red Sox rings. And Terry Francona led them to two. So there was just as much World Series experience on the Indian side as there was on the Red Sox side. I mean, I think that was something that bugged me too, was that you look at the name Red Sox and you think World Series, and rightfully so. But when you dig deeper beyond the surface, none of the guys beyond Ortiz and Pedroia are, are there anymore. I mean, none of the great pitchers are there anymore. Schilling's gone. None of the great relievers are there anymore. I mean, they, they don't have the deep experience, championship experience that they did three, four years ago. Yeah, and I I think it's what, – what I was referring to is more, I mean, not just World Series experience. It's it's the Red Sox. It's playing at Fenley Road. It's having just the presence of David Ortiz. Fenley Road? Uh, Fenway Park. <laughs> yeah, sorry it's all good, that. man. It's all good. Uh, our namesake of the website. I, I just think that there's a natural intimidation factor. Um, and yeah, if you dig into it, it yeah, you, you can dispel it pretty easily. But with Ortiz in the middle of that lineup, whenever you're going into Fenway Park in, in the postseason, I think that uh, there's an intimidation factor. And it just wasn't there this time around. And, and yeah, I mean, what you touched upon, that's probably the explanation. But I don't think that, um, you know, I think it, it it still could have happened in the series, especially with some of the sluggers that they've added around David Ortiz. I, I just think there's like a, the Red Sox just have a kind of an aura around them, regardless of, of whether it's true or not. And I think that the Indians did a good job dispelling that. Well, certainly. But, but what I was hinting at there is, uh, you know, the Red Sox defensively were shaky and a lot of the mistakes came uh, from younger players. Now I know Pedroia had a bad era in Game Two, but you know you look at the the outfield not getting the ball in the the Xander Bogarts error. You know th- those mistakes are from guys who don't have a lot of postseason experience. When you look at the other side, you see guys like Perez, Lindor, and and really everyone else still locked in. Uh, it's clear the Indians were not scared of the moment, and the Red Sox kind of were. And I'm not. I, I don't want to like put that that dramatically but the Indians there was no intimidation at all none and they stepped up and I think they led the entire series at once they took the lead in game one you know once they took the lead in in, and responded with those three one runs in game one I don't think they trailed the rest of the way yeah I I believe that's true as well Um, certainly didn't trail at all in game three obviously didn't trail at game two so I think you're right on that one yeah I mean the 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 Red Sox weren't ready for the moment the Indians were a- absolutely. I mean, not some some of these lines for the Red Sox. I mean, Jackie Bradley Jr. seven strikeouts and eleven plate appearances. Pedroia five strikeouts and fourteen plate appearances. I mean, that that's just uh that's just not going to do it. And and I, you know, I think the Indians are going to benefit so much from sweeping the Red Sox, and that confidence is only going to grow heading into this ALCS. I think. Uh, I think they put a lot of teams or the other three teams left in the playoffs on on notice that you know they are for real and should not be taken lightly. All right, Bob. So is it a coincidence that once again a Cleveland team trying to get through Toronto in the league championship series uh, to win its title? Well, I guess, I guess it is. It is a coincidence. Uh, our, 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 
our dad was talking. He said, you know, I'd love it if Cleveland would take down Toronto again because then a city would actually hate Cleveland for once. It would develop some deep seething hatred for the the Cleveland teams, you know, because in 07, remember, uh, you know, the Red Sox denied them. I, I'm sorry, I'm getting the um the 08 Cavs team that was denied by Boston's confused, but that happened kind of in the same year. You know, the Celtics deny the Cavs and the Red Sox deny the Indians. So it would be nice for another city to hate Cleveland for once. And, and we're the ones denying Toronto these championships. I really have nothing against the Blue Jays, but now it's come to a head. Someone's got to win, and, and I don't want my team to lose. But, Bob, I think this series is going to be significantly tougher than the one against the Red Sox. Yeah, I I, I think it naturally is. I mean, you have two teams that, that swept their opposition. Um, the Rangers with the best record in the AL. Um, I don't think anybody counted the Blue Jays out, but I think the Rangers were still favored to win the series. Uh, the Red Sox were definitely favored to win uh, the ALDS matchup against Cleveland. So, you know, they they, they as well, uh, you know, answered the call and, and have uh, dispelled some, some, some questions and, and whatnot. And this is their second trip to the ALCS in two years. So um, certainly... They are a, le- a legitimate team, and unlike the Red Sox, uh, their their big boys are, are hitting the ball. I mean, uh, Josh Donaldson had a great series. Uh, I mean, Encarnacion had, had a good series. So did Troy Tulowitzki. Uh, Jose Batista, a little bit down, but he still knocked in two run home runs and five RBIs, which in the postseason that that means a ton. So certainly the. The Indians' arms are going to get tested. I think they're up to the challenge, but I think that that is clearly the 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 key matchup. It's those big right-handed bats at the top of the Blue Jays lineup against some of these uh, starting pitchers that that we didn't even think would be starting in the postseason for the Indians. Yeah, a, a couple of things. First and foremost, this Blue Jays lineup is starting to come alive. I will say one thing though: it's a very right-handed heavy lineup, which is which perfect. does bode well for the Indians big time because the Indians don't have a lefty in the rotation. In fact, their their one really go-to lefty is Andrew Miller, who can get lefties and righties and really anyone out. It doesn't matter. You could bat, you know, standing in front of the plate, he'd still find a way to get you out. So the the point is, I do think around, his slider would go around you if you stay in the <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would just it would like go in circles. It would be like that cartoon where you know they they throw one pitch and they swing three times and you're out, <laughs> something like that. Um, the 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 point is, I do think that if there is a bright side, um, at least they're all righties. So Bauer, Kluber, and Tomlin don't have to worry about matching up with a guy like Gortiz, who being a lefty has a little bit of an advantage. So I, I think that bodes well. The other thing that bodes well is that I, I thought while Bauer was a little shaky, um, I thought he pitched well in game one overall. And I think he was yanked at the about the 80 pitch count because I think Terry was going to bring him back for game four on short rest and he didn't want to wear him out in game one. He was going to get as much as he could out of him until the 80 pitch count and then go to the bullpen. Which, and David Ortiz was about to come up and he just gave it, up a home run. Exactly, that, that, that too. But, but he was also near that 80 pitch count. I think that coming back on game four you obviously can't predict that that the rainout would have pushed him to normal rest you definitely want to have that in mind um so so I think and the other thing is you know I thought Tomlin pitched excellent in game three 
And that, that bodes well for the Indians long-term as well because the Indians are going to need a pitcher not named Corey Kluber to go deep in games now that we're in the best-of-seven series. They have not released their uh, projected starters for game one uh, in their rotation. But, Bob, would you be surprised if anyone not named Kluber was starting game one? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a done deal. Corey Kluber will be starting that uh, game one. I mean, a week's worth of rest is more than what Corey Kluber needs. They were talking about pitching him on uh, basically a three day three day schedule at some point. So yeah, he is absolutely game one, uh, the game one starter. And I think absolutely Trevor Bauer is game two, just just to preserve that rotation that they've established. I, I would agree with that. It's probably going to be Kluber, Kluber than Bauer, um, than Tomlin. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see Kluber go one, four, and seven this series if it goes to seven. I don't necessarily think the Indians want to do that because I think the Indians, it's in their best interest. It's in anyone's best interest to win a series fast, but particularly for the Indians because if they can go one and four with Kluber and then somehow win it fast enough that they could go one, four in the World Series, that's a huge advantage. So I, I, I'm thinking that it's, in the Indians' best interest to take care of Toronto as fast as possible. Not that it isn't normally, but it's heightened with the fact that, you know, it's clear Terry Francona wants Kluber to pitch as many of these games as humanly possible. Uh, so I, I definitely think that it's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting situation to see how he manages it. Yeah, for sure. I, I think one big key would just to see how Bauer and Tomlin do in, in games two and three you know can they give them anything can they give the bullpen some rest I mean uh, the the one disadvantage with those guys going uh, two games in three days is that you know we saw Andrew Miller go four innings for both of those starts I mean can he do that uh, over a three game three day stretch uh, to cover those guys you know if they win uh, if if Bauer you know, loses, but is able to go seven or eight innings, you know, maybe that changes things. And, uh, they, they go to a Mike Clevenger just to start game four and, and use their bullpen or something like that. Um, I think they have some flexibility, even though the depth isn't really there to say that they have flexibility, but I don't think it's a, it's a given that Corey Kluber is going to be pitching three games in the series. I think it's very likely just because, uh, the series is probably going to go kind of deep and it's going to be a high, uh, you know, you're going to need him for, for those three games, but I don't think it's uh, I don't think you can pencil him in right now for that to happen. Yeah, certainly. I think there'll be some flexibility. Like say, for instance, if the Indians were to go up three Oh, I'm not predicting that, but if they were to go up three Oh, I think it would don't think that you would bring him back on short rest. I think he would try to win that game with somebody else and then play Kluber on regular rest if needed. Um, because you don't want to drain a guy dry when you're up three Oh, um, it also wouldn't surprise me for the reason you said to see Kluber pitch game two to break up Bauer and Tomlin and get, try to sneak an extra day of rest with that bullpen, kind of like he did in the best of five series. Now, the difference is if you pitch game two, you can still come back on full rest for game five, the decider. If you pitch game two in a best of seven, you're probably looking at a game five or six return, five on short rest, six on um, extra rest. So it's one of those things where Kluber would not pitch the decisive game. If it got to seven, yeah, uh, you know, Corey or excuse me, Francona has uh, certainly surprised some conventional wisdom already in the postseason. It, it, I think that is 
is definitely a possibility. I don't think that, you know, one thing Francona doesn't do is get too cute with it. And I, I think that putting Corey Kluber in game two because you want to use your bullpen and, and rest them up in these situations, that's assuming too much. Uh, Corey Kluber is your best pitcher in the staff. Give him three opportunities to pitch if you need it. Um, don't don't tie your hands uh, and, and only limit him to, to those two starts, uh, game two and five. So um, they have options, and uh, whatever Francona decides to do, I certainly think will be the right move just because he seems to be very in tune with his team right now. Um, what, what are your thoughts on Toronto's pitching staff? I mean, Marco Estrada, 8.1 innings pitched, six strikeouts, only one earned run, uh, a, a very dominant performance against the Rangers. But besides that, not a whole lot. Uh, do you think that the Blue Jays have a better rotation than the Red Sox, or do you think it's kind of uh, on the same level? I think it's about the same level, maybe slightly better only because David Price in the postseason don't mix very well that that just boggles my mind how David Price has just these awful numbers in the postseason but you know J.A. Happ is kind of like the their version of Rick Porcello a journeyman guy who's having a career here 20 game winner pitched very well but a guy who doesn't like strike supreme fear in you like a Corey Kluber does you know I wouldn't brand him as like this elite ace that's unovercomerable that excuse me, that can't be overcome. Uh, You know, Rick Porcello, hats off to his great season. I wasn't intimidated by him. I'm sorry. Or or, or really David Price, knowing what I know about the playoffs and him. Uh, So the the fact of the matter is, I don't think the the Blue Jays have a guy like Corey Kluber in their back pocket. I think they have a bunch of really solid pitchers up and down, and their rotation definitely is a little deeper than the Cleveland Indians because of their injuries. But I I don't think it's, it's a rotation that Indians can't overcome. Yeah, me neither. Uh, first off, I, I don't mean to be mean to Rick Porcello, but if he ends up winning the Cy Young Award, I think he'll be the least lowest quality pitcher to win the Cy Young in probably 20 years. I was looking at the list, and I think I had to go that far back to see a name that I didn't recognize. Um, it, he just I, I was not scared of his 22-win record and, and all that. Um, moving forward though, Jay Happ, uh, yeah, only gave up one run, uh, in his start against the Rangers, but gave up nine hits. So, uh, not exactly dominant, but, uh, was able to come out on top. I think the Indians just like Porcello, uh, will be definitely be able to, to work him and, and work the rest of the, the, the Jays rotation in arms and their bullpen I'd say is, is definitely weaker than the Red Sox though. Uh, yes, I think their bullpen's a little bit weaker than the Red Sox. Um, they do have a really good closer in uh, Roberto Ozuna, but we saw him give up a inside-the-park walk-off home run to Cleveland not too long ago, which was still pretty sweet. Um, Jason Greeley also has closer experience, so they, they do have two solid guys at the back end, but I, I think the bridge isn't as strong. I do think the Red Sox had a pretty formidable bullpen and so it was nice to see the tribe uh not have to worry about it too much playing with a lead the bullpen doesn't play as much of a factor so that'll be another key for the Toronto Blue Jays if they can get a lead uh that will mitigate some of the Cleveland Indians bullpen just a little bit uh because you'll have to go to some of their other guys because naturally their starters will have struggled earlier on in the game Uh, that's that's all I'm saying I'm not saying you don't go to your bullpen with a lead but um and let's, let's talk about their defense because I, I think the Toronto Blue Jays play very good defense. They have a lot of outfielders. They can cover a lot of ground out there. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not necessarily saying they're better than the Indians defensively, but I, I think their defense is, uh, is something that can, is to be dealt with and reckoned with as well. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's game. I, I think the Indians have a game-saving defense. I mean, uh, Jose Ramirez, Roberto Perez made some huge plays uh, in, in the LDS that that probably saved some runs. I'm not sure if the Blue Jays have a game-saving defense. Uh, they're certainly not mistake-prone, and they're pretty solid in the outfield, like you said. Um, but Tulowitzki is a pretty big liability at shortstop. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that they. I don't think they're going to wow us, but they, they, they'll probably more, be more solid than what we saw from the Red Sox for sure. I, I still think the the matchup of this series is ultimately going to be the Toronto offense. I mean, the, this is a team that is built around its offense. They have really big bats. I think the offense top to bottom is better than the Red Sox. Um, I don't think there are as many weak spots in this offense. I do think the advantage of having a lot of right-handed bats versus the Indians' right-handed pitchers is is good for the Indians, but I don't think that that's enough to just say, oh, the Indians are definitely going to win. I do think that having Corey Kluber in your back pocket and a deep and talented bullpen is going to be the key. Can Kluber win every time he's on the mound, and can the bullpen keep pitching the way that it's been pitching? If the Indians are pitching like they did against Boston and handle this lineup the way they handled the Red Sox lineups, the Indians are going to win pretty easily. I, I do think the Blue Jays will get to them for one or two games, though. Yeah, I I, I think so as well, just because uh, against the Rangers, the Blue Jays averaged over seven runs per game. Um, I, I think that outside of Corey Kluber, those guys are – prone to give up some home runs to give up some runs so um, I, I don't think it's going to be a sweep um, but it is time to pick the series Chris what what, what are you predicting here well I'm not going to go sweep this time um, I think that would be a little bit too disrespectful to Toronto um, obviously I, first off three game sweep four game sweep totally different animals um, but I do think the Indians will win in six Actually, uh, picking the same thing, that's exactly what I thought as well. Um, I will be happy either way because I've thought about it a lot, and I did pick the Toronto Blue Jays to go to the World Series this year. I, I remember now. Nice. Very nice. So, well, you'll, you'll win either way. Yeah, I, I guess I won't be happy either way because obviously <laughs> only one is going to make me happy, but I, I will take a very small consolation if the Blue Jays do, and hap- do happen to win the ALCS. Um, I think there are going to be... I think it's just going to go game to game uh, what what the run differential is and all that. I think there are going to be some slugfests. I think there are going to be some really tight, low-scoring games, and I think it just depends who's out there on the mound for both teams. Big X factor for both teams. Uh, Francisco Liriano nursing an injury. Uh, it was a very scary moment. He had a line drive off of his uh, throat, I believe, in the last series. So hopefully he's okay because that's just something you don't wish upon anyone. Um, and then Danny Salazar. Uh, for the Indians so those are two big x factors that could help I believe both would come out of the bullpen I don't think Salazar would be uh, in line for a start just where he is on his rehab and what people have been saying but that those are certainly x factors like say you get to a game four you don't want to bring Kluber back on short rest maybe you do a Clevenger start with a Salazar three to four innings like a three and three kind of game uh, out of the bullpen Uh, Salazar when he's on is a legitimate ace so that is obviously a huge thing to have if he's healthy yeah for sure um you know he's limited even coming back in the bullpen they also said that the number of of different pitches that he's going to be able to throw with the forearm are down i think just to two pitches so who knows what to really expect i think um you're not going to see him in any high leverage game but if there is 
a blowout that's happening in the Indians way. You might see him out there on the mound trying to get his feet under him in case they do need him later in the series. That, that would be a very productive, uh, thing to do if Danny Salazar is even going to be on the roster you know that's still up in the air at this point certainly uh but hey if he's if he's healthy if he's able to give him anything of quality uh I will take Danny Salazar level quality even if it's just an inning or two because you need all the help you can get at this point man it's just eight wins away and uh it's it's exciting it's it's Bob it's just so exciting to be a Cleveland fan right now you know the, the 216 area code is blazing in 2016 man yeah it's it's definitely an exciting time um kind of unbelievable what's happening even you know even if the indian season were to stop right now i mean it's been an incredible year for cleveland sports for sure um but it's still going it could get even better which is fantastic um yeah really exciting unfortunately uh we we do there's the stepchild (laughs) We do have to talk about one other team, though, in Cleveland that's not uh, not part of the block party that's going on right now, and they're feeling pretty bad and left out. Um, Chris, no surprises here. Uh, home against New England, Tom Brady's game, first game back. I, I know you were there covering it, um, but the the result does not surprise me at all. 33-13, to 13, Tom Brady, I mean, almost 200 yards in the first half. Uh, just just dominated the Browns from from the beginning. Uh, what were your thoughts about this game? Well, I remember uh, I got to write the sidebar uh, for the Illyria Chronicle, and uh, it was on Tom Brady. It had to be. I mean, he was the story it, for for once. The entire nation's eyes were to, were on Cleveland. I mean, there were a lot of people in the press box. They weren't there for Cleveland. That was Brady's first game back, and the crowd was very much uh, pro Brady. Um, at least most of the crowd was. Um, so I got to, you know, go down and, and see his interview and everything. And uh, I remember turning to write the story and I looked at the stat sheet. And I'm thinking, 274 yards. No way. He threw for like 400. Because I, I, I remember typing it. Like I looked at the stat sheet and I just typed 274 yards. I'm like, no way. That, that is not what he threw. And I realized I was looking at the first half stat sheet. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, but that—that's a kind of line that someone would have uh, for the game. Uh, so, so you know, you said it better. I mean, everyone knew that this game was just going to be a loss for the Browns. I mean, Tom Brady was coming back. He was mad. He played masterfully. I mean, anyone who wondered about his rust—two passes, ten-yard gain, nineteen-yard game conversation over and he was in machine gun Brady mode just torching every single player in the Brown secondary uh, it didn't matter he ran for a first down it, it, it was exactly as you thought it would go uh, there was one drive the first drive of the game where the Browns played very well uh, they, they matched the Patriots first touchdown then the Patriots scored again the Browns did a Browns play and handed them a safety and then the Patriots got another possession and scored again, and then the game essentially was over uh, because you can't spot a Patriots two points in a possession when you're the Browns. Uh, yeah. But, Bob, I, I guess the overriding question Browns fans are wondering is will the Browns ever be what this Patriots team is? Because this Patriots team, you can love them, you can hate them. They're the gold standard in the NFL. This is the team everyone aspires to be. And I don't care what you think about their alleged, you know, scandals or whatnot. 
Don't lie, listeners. You want your team to beat the be the Patriots. Okay, everyone wants it. Will the Browns ever get there? Yeah. Well, first off, I, I do want us to say, you know, it wasn't just a safety that you know blew the, blew the game for the Browns. It knocked out Cody Kessler as well in that play, which was just you know. That was the Cleveland Brown moment in this game. We've seen it every week, and and that was it right there. Uh, a safety plus knocking out your promising young rookie who is who, who looked competent. You know that first, it was their second drive of the game in response to that touchdown, seventy five yards and eight plays. You know, for a second they actually looked competitive against the Patriots, which was a lot longer than what I gave them uh, for the game. So, yeah, that I just had to mention that uh, depressing moment in the Browns. Now will the Browns ever be the Patriots uh that's a nobody could ever predict that because one you have to have the franchise quarterback that stays around and is successful and is great for almost 20 years and you have to have uh the best coach uh of the generation working with him and you know be able to instilling a system that operates fluidly and flawlessly I think that everyone aspires to be the Patriots I, you know, to say the Browns will be there one day, I think that's just a flat out lie. I I don't think anybody can say that they will get there until they're two Super Bowls in or or whatnot. So, um, yes, they are the gold standard. They are what the Browns should aspire to be. But just as a realist, the Browns will never be there just like all 30 other teams won't ever get there because this Patriots dynasty is – the dynasty. I mean, there's only going to be one other team in the future that is going to be able to say, compare themselves to the Patriots, and I don't think the Browns are um, favorites to, to replace them anytime soon. So no, but that's not a bad thing. They can still win Super Bowls. They can still be super successful. They can be like the Ravens or the Bengals or you know even a smaller flash in the pan like the Seahawks of the past few years. Um, but to say that, are they going to get to the Patriots level ever? Uh, probably not just because I don't think any other team will either. Yeah, you always bet against a question like that, just the odds don't favor it. But what gives me hope is that prior to Bill Parcells and Drew Bledsoe in around the mid-90s, the Patriots were the Browns. I mean, they weren't exactly a gold standard NFL franchise. I know they got to the Super Bowl in 86, but really other than a couple years here and there, they were not a very well-run team. And so... I do think it's possible for the Browns to maybe not achieve their level of success because it's on an all-time level that I think really only a handful of other teams like San Francisco and Pittsburgh have matched in their respective eras. Uh, and, and I'm sure there are others. I'm you know, even Cleveland way back when, when they won tons of championships with Otto Graham back before the Super Bowl, the Packers in the 60s, all those teams. I mean, you get what I'm saying. The point is, I do think the Browns can turn things around but as you said earlier man they gotta start keeping these quarterbacks healthy because even if they had Tom Brady he probably would have been hurt (laughs) I mean today or Sunday or whenever I mean Bob the Browns have played five different quarterbacks this year they've I joked with people over under nine and a half this year for quarterbacks played they're already at five in five games it's it's getting ridiculous how how injured these guys are getting. This is a serious problem. This isn't just one guy having an injury history. This is a serious problem. Yeah, it I I don't know like what what is going on with the quarterbacks, but you know 
most teams start three at the most and that's a terrible year an awful year for their franchise that's just the norm for the Browns I mean we 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 talked earlier in the season you know would Kevin Hogan be the fourth starter for the Browns at the end of the year um and we I I think we both were pretty positive that that probably would happen at, at some point just be, because that's the norm for the Browns I mean Charlie Whitehorst is gone Kevin Hogan is promoted uh to the starting uh lineup now uh, so they could potentially start their sixth quarterback just in week six um it, it's that it's that real <laughs> um it, and it's kind of unreal uh that just the rate they're going through these quarterbacks it's a serious problem I think that um you know Hugh Jackson wants to instill his system and his game plan I think you know, for the rest of the year, you got to just keep these guys healthy and, and get a game plan that gets the ball out of their hands and where they can't take hits uh, from from a, a weaker offensive line protecting them. So, um, yeah, it's an issue. I, I think it's a lot of freakish bad luck that just the Browns have always had and, and, and continue to perpetuate, but um, it, it gives you pause uh, year in and year out. Their quarterbacks just get torn through like paper. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the problem is, to tell you the truth. I mean, the the offensive lineup until this year had been one of the strengths of the team. Um, yeah, they're just – the Browns just can't find the guy, and even if they do find the guy, it's like, do you really believe he's going to stay healthy? I, I don't know. So um, you know, hopefully Cody Kessler can play. We will talk more about the upcoming matchup with the Titans – on our Football Friday's bonus episode of Cleat Talk that runs every Friday, previewing the Browns matchup. We will also talk about the Buckeyes in Wisconsin. Huge game in college football, not just the Big Ten, next weekend. So we will have a little double action on our Football Fridays. Uh, speaking of the Buckeyes, uh, they won 38-17 to against Indiana, but it was a lot closer than that final would lead you to believe. Um, the Hoosiers had the ball on the four-yard line, Fourth and fourth and one, uh, down fourteen, and uh, ran a play right up the middle against one of the best run defenses in all of college football, and well, the rest is history. Um, so the point is, uh, you know, the Hoosiers were right there with the Buckeyes for most of the way. This is the first time Ohio State really kind of struggled all year. Um, even if you count the Oklahoma game, I don't think they struggled in that game. I think Oklahoma hang, hung with them for a bit, and then Ohio State blew them out. Um, Bob. Uh, any any reason to worry, or is this just kind of a natural, you know, regular season blip? Yeah, I don't, I don't think uh, it gives anyone any. It should give anyone any pause uh, that the Buckeyes didn't shut out their opponent. Um, that they actually played a kind of competitive game against a team that has beaten competitive competition prior to playing the Buckeyes. So no, I don't think it's a much a co- cause for concern. I think. Uh, if anything, it might serve as a wake-up call at home uh, when they're getting ready to go on the road against a, a top-10 team in Wisconsin. But no, I'm not really concerned. You know, JT Barrett definitely had an off day. Was only nine for 21, one touchdown, and and with one interception. But again, they they ran the ball for 50 times and almost 290 yards, and, and JT Barrett was a huge part of that. So um, they 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 seem fine. I didn't see anything that uh, gives me cause for concern. It was just just an off day just like every top 10 team goes through uh the the ones that make it to the playoff win those games and that's what the Buckeyes did and they still won it convincingly 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard to nitpick when you win by 17, but but I'm sure Urban Meyer is going to nitpick because there there is a lot to improve. But you're right. I mean, look, no football team is going to go through a season completely obliterating everyone. You're going to struggle at times. And let's give Indiana some credit because, as you said, they upset Michigan State a week ago, who was ranked in the top 25 at the time. Not anymore after the loss to BYU. But the point is, as you said, they had played some higher tier competition before and had some success. So it's not like Indiana is a terrible bad team. I don't even think they're a bad team. I think they're a solid in the middle team that I think is going to give some people problems in the Big Ten, especially if teams try to look past them. So, uh, you know, I'm going to, I think it's more about Indiana playing well than Ohio State playing bad. But even a bad Ohio State game translates to a 17 point win. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, there's too much cause for concern, as you said. Um, but around the nation, Bob, my heart was broken on Saturday because Navy upset Houston. As we all know, I picked them to reach the playoffs. And Bob, it looks like that dream could be dashed. Now, they still have Louisville on the schedule, which could help boost them in the rankings, but certainly a big setback uh, for Houston. Yeah, pretty surprising. Um you know, the Houston isn't completely out of it, like you said, but it, now they, they definitely need some uh, two, a couple of two lost teams to be in in that top five where they can make a case. Because um, even if they beat Louisville, uh, I don't. That's not going to be enough just because of the conference that they play in. Um, yeah, that was definitely shocking. Um, who would have thought Navy would be the one that upset them? Um, Texas A and M again for the third straight week almost looked like uh the victim of destiny against tennessee uh i I don't know how tennessee does it they're always trailing by two touchdowns in the second half um made some amazing plays in that game to force a double overtime eventually finally losing a game (laughs) against texas a&m surprisingly uh just because of all the crazy things happening i guess behind them tennessee did not move at all in the rankings which i thought was a little bit surprising considering that uh they potentially could have been uh they could have three losses on the year already but uh did you have a chance to catch any of that crazy game no not really i was covering the buckeyes game uh on saturday so i was driving all over ohio and uh locked in watching the game but um a couple things caught my eye on the poll western michigan ranked at six and oh that's pretty cool for the mac boise state quietly five and oh uh, Navy got ranked because of their big win over Houston. So we got some teams that could play some spoiler uh, bubbling into the top 25. Um, and then, of course, the big showdown in Florida, Miami, losing to Florida State. Um, Bob, what did you think of the LSU-Florida situation? Uh, that's one other thing I wanted to ask you, being more in the in tune with the SEC than uh, the folk up north. LSU-Florida canceled because of the hurricane. Uh, what did you think of that situation? Yeah, um, it's it's interesting uh what that the implication that that could have uh particularly for the sec east i mean uh tennessee has a big matchup against alabama um soon and if they lose that you know florida will then be in first place in the sec east without you know the 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 same amount of games played uh, as tennessee has so um very interesting um i'm not sure what you could do about it because as you saw with that north carolina state versus notre dame game i mean the there were some areas in the country that you absolutely couldn't play a football game in and i think that that was one of them um lsu versus florida uh they rightfully canceled that game but it's gonna put a lot of things into question uh 
especially considering that Tennessee is still, you know, uh, in the running for an SEC East title and a uh, a playoff berth, and and then you know their their chief rivals for that SEC East championship is is the Florida Gators. So um, interesting to see how it plays out if they actually end up rescheduling that game. Um, but yeah, it kind of makes for an odd situation. Yeah, well, first and foremost, you're right. I mean, they absolutely should have postponed the game. No questions there. Um, interesting that, I mean, I'm surprised that they didn't try to work to play the game in LSU or something like that because of, uh, you know, I believe South Carolina did that when uh, they had a similar situation last year. Um, I'm surprised the SEC didn't step in and, and try to twist Florida's arm and to, to get it done because, like you said, I mean, the schedule's so constricted. Uh, this is going to be a huge factor. If, if Florida gets to just bypass LSU, uh, that could be a loss on their schedule. And so I, I it'll be interesting down the stretch to see uh, how this all plays out, uh, no doubt. But um, certainly something to watch. Bob, anything else in college football uh, caught your eye over the weekend? No, I think we hit it all. Um, Miami not only lost, but lost on a blocked extra point attempt uh, to end the game. I thought that was pretty heartbreaking. That's like a Browns play. Oh, for sure. It is a Browns play. <laughs> but, alrighty. So, don't forget to tune in to Football Fridays where we will preview the Browns and this week the Buckeyes matchup versus Wisconsin. Uh, it's every Friday for the football season. So, come back to FenleyRoadSports.com for that and come back to FenleyRoadSports.com for more content and podcast every single week where we bring you Clee Talk talking Cleveland sports, loving the tribe. Hopefully next week when we have another episode, we're talking about a 2-0 lead and uh, on the verge of being in the World Series. That would be very exciting. But until then, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Just search Fenley Road Sports or subscribe to our podcast through FenleyRoadSports.com by clicking the little iTunes icon in the top right corner and hitting subscribe. That's all you have to do. It's that easy. And please come back every week for more Clay Talk where we talk Cleveland sports. Until then, go Tribe. All right, I'll see you, Chris. Go Tribe. Take it easy, Bob.